I would say there should not be this many unanswered questions when a man's life is on the line. When this thing goes to court and trial, I have one shot and one opportunity to be not guilty or I go to prison in death row. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the reality of it. We have busted alibis. We have caught people in lies. This is just insane because everybody's pointing the finger at somebody else. You just don't hear every day walking in somebody's house, they're going to take the plastic out and pop somebody. So he could get the execution date pretty much any day? Yeah. There's no impediment. This is Cousins by Blood. Episode 16, One Single Shell Casing. About a month after Susan Eichenberg and I were in Minnesota interviewing Amy, we met back up in Texas. We had a meeting set with a Collin County District Attorney investigator. After it was discovered that the Rolex that Ivan had been charged with stealing from James had been located, and in fact, Ivan had never stolen it, this investigator had been assigned to look into the Rolex situation in this case. I had spoken to him over the phone regarding my report on the Rolex. His name was Dale Lundberg. And coincidentally... So I knew Dale from the time that I worked at the Dallas Police Department. That was Eichenberg. And because of her history working with Dale Lundberg, he was willing to sit down with us. The Rolex had brought up a potential red flag on Ivan's conviction. There was some slight smoldering, and I wanted to continue to fan those flames with the DA's office and see if I could get any heat back on Ivan's case after 20 years by sitting down with Lundberg and discussing all the other potential red flags with a conviction. As well, I wanted to see if I could generate some more evidence that the DA's office had that Ivan's legal team had never gotten access to. So basically, Lundberg was doing a favor for Eichenberg by sitting down with us, and Eichenberg was doing a favor for me by setting up the meeting. But before Eichenberg would sit down in front of Dale Lundberg, she wanted to sit down in front of Ivan and pin him down on his story since she was kind of sticking her neck out with her old friend, who was now a DA investigator. What's today's date? Today is December 18th, 2019, and it's a Wednesday. It's uh, about 7.50. That was Eichenberg and I in the car in Livingston, Texas, heading to the Blunsky death row unit. We had a legal visit scheduled with Ivan at 8 a.m. It was important for Eichenberg to feel out Ivan and his story so that she could be as informed as possible before we sat down with Dale Lundberg because likely we only had one shot to get any kind of movement going with the DA's office. We're rolling to the prison. This will be my third interview with Ivan. This will be Eichenberg's first, although she's going to be running this. And I want you to put Ivan through the paces, and what are you worried about? Be honest. Uh, I mean, obviously you have your doubts that he is actually innocent. We had gotten to the hotel late the night before, and Eichenberg let me know she didn't know who to believe, Ivan or Amy. Um, We had interviewed Amy a couple weeks before, and honestly, I didn't find her credible. However... I had a lot of doubt of Ivan's innocence as well. I needed to establish credibility with Ivan or not. What are you thinking going into this interview? I'm just going to start from the beginning. I'm going to put him in storytelling mode. 
Prior to that, I'm probably just going to get a feel for him and explain to him that I may interrupt him on several occasions, which is, you know, not being disrespectful, but it's my job. And so that we get that at the onset. But last night you were saying that you, you do think he did it, but you were also saying that you don't think the trash can looked like that during the safety check. So how do you, how do you separate those two? Because if the trash can didn't look like that, that would mean someone else had to put that after the fact. Well, that's exactly why I'm here. I mean, there's some stuff that doesn't add up. One being the trash can. I know it didn't look like that. I don't think it didn't look like that. I know it didn't. Um, and some inconsistencies with, you know, stories from Amy Betcher. Um, the fact that uh, they were hanging around some very unsavory persons which probably included Ivan and Amy. However, that doesn't mean he did it. Um, do I think he did it? Probably. Um, but probably is not good enough to put him to death. Although so far we've discussed some elements that raise some reasonable doubt, this case is still stacked against Ivan. If you take the state's case as fact, you've got a direct witness that testified under oath that Ivan committed the murders. You've got evidence including bloody jeans, bloody socks, James and Amy Kitchen's car keys, and a box of bullets found in Ivan and Amy B's apartment that all tie Ivan to the crime. And the final nail being Ivan's thumbprint on the magazine of the murder weapon. That is about as slam dunk as you can get if we're to believe all the evidence presented at trial. And although Eichenberg sees problems with some of this evidence, she's a former cop, so she still sees the evidence. What is he gonna have to do that you walk out of here in four hours that you're like, bam, maybe he didn't do it, or I'm pretty sure he didn't do it. What is he gonna have to do? He's gonna have to develop a reasonable story or factual story that resonates in my brain compared to the things that I already know about the case. And you're going to try to poke holes in a story, obviously. Absolutely. Good. Absolutely. And Pizza Man it, is... Pizza Man is pretty... Uh, Pizza Man's a me problem. A doubt. Yeah. The Pizza Man is probably Eisenberg's biggest problem with Ivan's story. There are some weird, hard-to-believe elements in this case, and the Pizza Man story is right up there. It does not make sense for a guy dressed as a Domino's Pizza Man to bust into Ivan's apartment and shake Ivan down for James' supposed debt. But just because it doesn't make sense doesn't mean it's impossible to have happened. However, when you have the state's firearm examiner testify that the bullet in the wall of Ivan and Amy's apartment was fired from the same gun used to commit the murders. And again, Ivan's thumbprint was said to be found on the magazine of that gun. That does not point to an unknown pizza man. That points to Ivan. Though there is more to the ballistics in this case, which you'll be hearing about this episode. And I would not be here if I was 100% positive that he did it. So I think to take someone's life, um, we have to know for sure, and I don't know that that'll ever be for sure. Percentage-wise, where would you say you're at uh, guilt, innocence now, and let's say where are you going to be later? So you're saying 80% he's guilty? 80, 85. Mm-hmm. 
80, 85%. Later, I can't predict, obviously. I mean... No, well, after after the interview. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know. We'll see. Hello, sir. We pulled up to the guard at the front gate. He had to check out IDs and check the vehicle for any weapons or paraphernalia. We gathered all our paperwork and notes and walked inside the prison. We went through front security, got padded down and got visitor badges. We walked to the visitor area and got a separate room enclosed from the other inmate and visitor conversations. Because this was a legal visit, I'm not able to broadcast Ivan's interview, but you should be able to hear more from Ivan in upcoming episodes. We interviewed Ivan for four hours. This was Eichenberg's take on the interview. When first speaking with Ivan, I found him to be very animated, talking very fast, very hyper. Ivan really wanted to get his story, which I don't blame him, to us. So he cut me off a little bit and said, hey, can we get to what I want to talk about? And I just reminded him that I was running the interview and that we definitely would get there. So I just rolled into that from where I had gone about his childhood. Ivan does have a little history of violence. Um, at one point he kicked his mom's door in because he was mad about her car door. He was mad about not being able to drive the vehicle. At another point, he's had some domestic violence. I then continued to go through the timeline. Ivan's very good at, at articulating himself. He's a smart man. And that's what keeps me involved with this case because it's complicated. Some things add up that Ivan said. Some things sound ridiculous that Ivan said. Some things add up that Amy said. Sometimes Amy gets caught in lies. So just that back and forth and that hint of credibility just when you think the whole thing's a lie keeps me intrigued about this case. And although this was my third time in front of Ivan, this was the first time we covered the ballistics of his case. He broke down the problems with the ballistics as he saw it. He showed us documents and pictures of the bullets and shell casings and pointed out anomalies. I edited that down to a nine-minute recording, and I took that recording with the supporting documents and pictures and sent this to an expert in the field of ballistics to get their analysis of the issues that Ivan raised. How uh, exactly do you get qualified to become a ballistics expert? So starting out, I was a forensic investigator and... While I was doing that, I became certified as a forensic investigator in the state of Georgia. And then I was chosen to go ahead and become um, a ballistic analyst. And they sent me to three different training courses, um, which helped me to analyze shell casings and compare them, and then to train others to do the same. That was Jenna Rojas. She asked to put this disclaimer before her interview. Any statements provided by Jenna Rojas are not a representative of the agencies that I have worked for or am currently working for. Previous to this call, she let me know the scope of her expertise. And so you didn't get trained on actually bullets. It was just the shell casing. Correct. And it's actually a shell casing that is of particular interest in this case. You listened to Ivan's interview, correct? Yes. He brought up a couple different discrepancies from what he saw in the ballistics. And let's just kind of go through them. I have them written out. So this first discrepancy has to do with the appearance of the bullets removed from the bodies of James and Amy Kitchen versus the appearance of the bullet 
removed from the wall at Ivan and Amy's apartment. Would you describe kind of what he had to say about how the appearance of the bullets looked different from the ones that were taken from the bodies and from the crime scene, and then the bullet that was taken from the Pear Ridge apartment? So I have a couple of photos of the actual bullets, and one looks like completely smushed, just like completely flat. And you can see these pictures and reports on our social media pages. And then the other, and I think it's labeled recovered from the floor or carpet in the corner of the room by the potted plant. And then the other one that I have a photo of looked like it was, uh, minus the top, looked like it was somewhat intact. But the top looked like it had mushroomed down. What we, I think they usually call it, is flowered. Right. So the ones that, it, it seems that the ones that were retrieved from the crime scene and the bodies, they are, like you say, smushed and, and mushroomed out and just like really, like I think Ivan used that they're, they're a mangled mess, mm-hmm. which, which seems to be the case. And the one that was retrieved from the wall, it looks to be pretty much perfectly intact. And mm-hmm. his question was, how come the ones in the bodies have exploded like this? And with a soft, softer surface like a body, and then mm-hmm. how come the one in the wall was pristine? Um, mm-hmm. What would you say to that? Is that odd? The times that I have recovered um, shell casings, or not shell casings, bullets from actual walls, the quality of them, I was told while I was on the scene, would not be good enough to actually compare them because the way that you get them out of the wall and the damage that they went through to go through the wall is often too damaging to actually see the intricate striations that you need to analyze for comparison. So I wouldn't, unless they took a huge portion of the wall out and were able to somehow do that and not have any damage on it, then I would not be able to see a way that it would be in pristine condition. Hmm. Well, that's interesting because, yeah, not only was the bullet in pristine condition, um, they also say that they're able to tell that that bullet matches the gun that was used um, for the murders. You know, I'm, at, I'm wondering how, how could they know that? This is a crucial detail because you'll remember Amy said Ivan fired at her with the same gun that he used for the murders. So having that bullet in the wall match the murder weapon would support that. The forensic analyst testified that they were able to to match that 100%. Mm-hmm. So is that possible? Or are you saying it's not possible? I'm saying I would have a hard time believing that you could do that with that little information. What little information? the little information that is remaining on those bullets. Hmm. Well, now, are we talking about the mangled mess of bullets that were in the bodies or the pristine bullet that was in the wall? (laughs) The mangled mess that was in the bodies. That That would be difficult to say without a doubt that these are the, that these derived from the same firearm not only because of the damage that they sustained 
um, while going through the bodies, but of the act of actually trying to get everything off of them. However, because Jenna's expertise is in shell casings and not bullets, she let me know a firearm expert would need to speak more to that. So further analysis will be upcoming. But from from your knowledge, that that does seem odd to you. Questionable. Mm-hmm. And now, but but your understanding, just a um, traditional understanding of ballistics, if if a bullet is fired into a wall, does it remain intact like that, or? Um, it really depends on the construction of the wall and what it's made of. Some some can be whole, but a lot of times you see a lot of splintering and damage. So that could go either way. Um, I would have to get a bigger sample size, but a lot of the times they were not in pristine condition. Okay, very Especially since you have to dig them out of the wall. There's no documentation of the removal of this bullet from the wall and if a section of the wall was removed or not. But let's focus on Jenna's expertise. Okay, and so now let's talk about the casings uh, because Ivan brought up the casings, which I thought was interesting as well. Do you have the pictures in front of you? Yes. I'm looking at the photos of the shell casing, the 380 um, federal cartridge shell casing. 1261 is the one where it's peeled back. Again, you can follow along with these numbers on our social media pages. Right. So, yeah. So, describe these shell casings, and is that normal? So... The shell casings as a whole, you can see our 380 federal cartridge. Um, and the you can see some pretty good striations across the breech face. The firing pin is circular in nature. Um, but what is concerning to me is in image 1261, um, where you see some blowout at the bottom of the shell casing. Now, If it's along the rim of the shell casing, um, that can be a loading issue. Um, But the only time I've seen the blowout from the bottom of the shell casing is when the wrong caliber ammunition is placed in a firearm that it's not meant to. Like if a 380 is in a 9mm or for example. Really? That's been my experience because we had, um, we placed some ammunition in a different caliber weapon and that's exactly what happened was the blowout was in the bottom of it. And you also see it when it's taken off crime scenes when certain ammunition is placed in firearms and they aren't aware that it's shot interchangeable. So you're saying from your experience that would come from a gun other than a 380 firing this bullet. Correct. That is huge. Because that would mean there were two guns at the murder scene. The 380 caliber pistol and also a 9mm. So either Ivan and someone else, possibly Amy, committed the murders, or two other someone else's committed the murders very interesting and would that still fire correctly i mean we've seen the possibility of um some ammunition being loaded into the wrong caliber as long as it fits then it's still able to fire but there will be some malfunctions more than likely 
But shell casings and guns, you should definitely be able to tell the difference. Because it says it right on them. What? You're saying? The, the, oh, the when they listed the incorrect one. And here's where the ballistics gets real, real interesting. Well, yeah, so that brings us to on the crime scene report, they have it listed as a nine millimeter casing was found at the murder scene. It says mm-hmm. nine, it just says nine millimeter. What kind of bullets? This is nine millimeter. Uh, what, is, do you, what do you think about that? It says it on the actual shell casing, what kind of a shell casing it is. So there should be no mix up when you can read it clear as day on the shell casing. So to be clear, in addition to the ruptured shell casing indicating that a 380 caliber bullet was fired from a nine millimeter gun on the medical examiner's investigation report under instrument, it lists, quote, gun dash nine millimeter casing on floor in a paper bag, unquote. But there is no record of a nine millimeter casing in evidence. So is that just a typo? Or did they find a nine millimeter casing like this report says? And when that didn't fit the official story, Amy Betcher's story, that nine millimeter casing disappeared. I don't know, but it certainly sounds like they found a nine millimeter casing. Mm-hmm. And you can see on the envelope, you get the baggies, it says one SC380. So you know that they're looking at the shell casings to determine what they are because you don't know what an FC looks like unless you're reading the actual label. And you also have like this casing that looks like it wasn't fired by a, a 380. Mm-hmm. So it looks like that there would have been a nine millimeter involved and a 380 involved and somehow the guy with the nine millimeter put in the wrong bullets. I mean, I, I don't know. How would you explain that? Possibility. I talked over Jenna, but she said she can't explain that. Now, Ivan also talks about the discrepancy in the number of bullets that were turned in. What, one report has... One said four, but wasn't there nine? So he's saying that there's five to play with. And his theory is that that they had these... they, They performed test fires... And then since they had these extra bullets to play with, then one of those test fires somehow, I don't know how it would be an accident, but potentially an accident, potentially not an accident, but they said that that one of those test fires was the actual bullet that came out of the wall. What do you think about that? So in a 50-round box, there's nine left, and then in another report, there's only four. But usually you don't use the ammunition that you recover in the actual um, case to perform the test fires. Um, So that that was my first uh, red flag. And then how they perform the test fires would be another question. Um, Normally it's just a two. So I don't know what would have happened to the other three. Well, so let's let's assume they didn't use your. I mean, that yeah, like you say, that makes a lot of sense. They probably wouldn't, shouldn't have used the, however many bullets were in the box 
for the test fires. So, ba- but basically, mm-hmm. we're just missing five bullets mm-hmm. that that can't be accounted for. Okay, so what does all this say to you, and and where should I go from here? So, I would try to see if they have any photographs of the box recovered from Tawny's couch to see how many they actually had when they recovered it. Because if they're claiming there's four, but in the photo there's nine, that would raise some questions as to where the other five came from. There are no pictures of inside the box of bullets in the case file to confirm the actual number of bullets found. So as of now, this discrepancy of the number of bullets is still an anomaly. And then with the... Um, actual bullet comparisons, I would request an independent firearms examiner examine the actual bullets from the scene and be able to tell you if that one actually came out of the wall and if they have enough information on the bullet to determine that it is an actual match. Um, For the shell casings, I would also ask him if he's seen any other reason why a blowout would occur like we saw in an image 1261. Other than it was fired by not a 380. Correct. However, for the additional analysis... This is not something that can be performed with just pictures. Like, they're going to need the physical bullets, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Lump sum of everything that you see here, do you see some red flags, some concerning elements about the ballistics? I see some definite questions that need to be addressed and um i would be very interested to know the outcome and the explanation behind the questions that you guys have raised because there are a lot of things that don't add up so what, what is the biggest concern for you we have missing bullets we have uh, shell that looks like it was fired by another gun, not a 380, and you have a bullet coming from a wall when you say it seems unlikely that it would be that intact. Is that all correct? Yes, it's kind of hard to choose a top concern with all the concerns that have been raised because they all seem pretty big to me. especially in a death row case, huh? Yes, that is the most concerning part. I would say there should not be this many unanswered questions when a man's life is on the line. And here's where it gets even more interesting. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health 
right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And here's where it gets even more interesting. There could be another reason that part of the 380 caliber shell had ruptured and peeled back like that. And that's because the shell could have gotten stuck ejecting out of the 380. Now, there's two reasons that's a really big deal. One, that would mean we're back to just one murder weapon, unlike the two-gun theory that Jenna posited. And the second reason that's a big deal, if the shell got stuck coming out of that 380, likely whoever was firing it would have had to pull back the slide, get the cartridge case out of there, and then load another cartridge by pulling the slide back. Essentially, that caused a jam. Now, why that's really interesting is that in Amy's statement, she said, quote, He returned home at 12.18 a.m. by our clock. Ivan had blood on his jeans, his socks, and on his gun. Gun was jammed, unquote. So how would Amy Betcher know that? Unless Ivan actually did commit the murders, then came back and said the gun jammed. Or Amy was actually there during the murders, and she saw it jam. There are two other possible scenarios of how that could have wound up in Amy's statement if Ivan did not commit the murders. Remember on November 8th, the day Ivan got arrested, when Tawny and Ivan were out of Tawny's apartment for somewhere between four and six hours? Well, could someone have come over and dropped the murder weapon off and then Amy planted the murder weapon under the couch cushion? As Tawny suggested, well, if that did happen, that person could have told Amy the gun jammed for whatever reason. Now I know that wouldn't explain how Ivan's thumbprint got on the magazine, but we'll be addressing that down the line. And the second scenario is that it could have been brought up to her by law enforcement in Arkansas if they had the crime scene photos of the shell casing and thought that the shell also looked like it caused a jam. Could it have been suggested through questioning, like the Rolex perhaps was, and said something like, Amy, did he say anything about the gun jamming? Or did Amy just make it up? Amy also said that Ivan said that this was, quote, his favorite gun. However, even if Ivan did have this gun, there's no evidence that he ever had another gun. Would this have been his favorite and only gun? So all of this is very perplexing. This single shell casing is a huge detail of this case. Is it a major indicator of Ivan's guilt? Because it corresponds with a detail that only the killer would know. Or is it a major indicator that there was actually a second gun at the murder scene? Could Ivan and Amy have done this together? Or was Ivan set up by other gunmen? One single ruptured shell casing could be the key to this whole case. So I had to get another opinion. This is Chuck Stevenson, and these are his credentials. I am a uh, former law enforcement officer, but local law enforcement. Also a uh, Federal Bureau of Investigation uh, firearms instructor and, and uh, a SWAT team member. In my current time, I'm in private business, and I've, uh, I'm a crime scene reconstructionist with regard to ballistics and firearms in work cases cases throughout the United States. 
Excellent. Um, and so now I sent you a picture of, uh, of the, the shell in question. And um, could you just, just describe that shell and, and what that signifies to you? It's my understanding that there was a, an incident involving a, a weapon uh, that the weapon used was a 9mm, which is a uh, the description of a particular round, millimeter being a diameter of a bullet. Uh, as I looked at the, uh, and, and, and let me let me just clarify because these are uh, 380 shells, and, and the murder weapon was uh, a 380. And I'm just trying to determine: is it possible that a nine millimeter was in play? That's the distinction I'm making. When I looked at the case that I was shown, there's a rupture of the case, which means to me that what that the case itself, once it was loaded into what we call the forcing cone of the particular barrel of the weapon that was used, that it was smaller than the diameter of the forcing cone. Once that round was fired, that allowed the casing to rupture. The bullet was fired, but to rupture because it wasn't seated properly inside the the uh, forcing cone of the barrel of, say, a 9 millimeter, and it does happen. You can fire a 380 round inside a 9 millimeter uh, pistol, and it will fire, but the bullet itself will not force itself tightly into the forcing cone of the barrel, which would allow the, as it's fired, which will allow for the case to rupture, and that's what it looked like to what happened to me in this particular incident. Visually, is there a way to determine their different characteristics in the shell? If a 380 was fired out of a, a 9 millimeter, and, and kind of how you're describing it, or uh, the 380 shell was actually fired in the 380 gun, and uh, it was maybe just a bad cycle, and, and somehow it got, uh, I don't know how you would describe that. It would be unusual. It, it, it could happen, but it would be unusual to have the a 380 caliber round fired in a 380 caliber barrel that the shell would rupture. I, I don't see, you don't see too many, or at least I haven't seen, um, ejected shell casings from any particular caliber that rupture like that unless they've been overloaded. It's normally associated with somebody hand loading some, some casings, overloading the powder charge, that sort of thing, versus a, a a commercial loading of the of the bullet itself just to be clear if they're saying that there was only one gun that uh, because there were there were multiple 380 rounds or 380 shells found this was the only one that was ruptured um if if there was only supposed to be one murder weapon and only 380 shells were found and this was also found does that Does that indicate to you that, I mean, it's certainly a possibility that there was a second gun in play in the murders? Well, obviously it does. I mean, if you've got multiple 380 rounds and you have a 9mm weapon and then you've got one ruptured 380 round and the other rounds are consistent with other tool marks on it, such as Uh, firing pin markings, ejection pin markings, that sort of thing. So that would mean, yeah, there's a possibility there can be a second weapon involved. In your expert opinion, uh, because, and this again, this is a capital murder case, and knowing that this guy was convicted 
as the, the only shooter with this being the only murder weapon and this guy's time is almost up on death row. I mean, do you think that this is a, a serious concern, a red flag for you? Well, I think it's a, uh, it's a fact element that, that has to be considered. Um, there has to be an explanation and certainly worth considering since it's a capital murder case. And obviously there's some contradictions here that, that need to be forensically examined. We would like to have the ballistics re-examined by an independent firearm expert. However, at this point, it's unknown whether Collin County will allow that to happen. And there's just not much more that any ballistic expert can say or testify to definitively with only these pictures to go on. Though, based on these pictures, now that's two experts in the field of ballistics that see red flags with this case, this capital murder case. And again, Ivan's trial attorney did not call any expert witnesses to try to refute the state's case. And like you heard in the beginning of this episode, Ivan brought up these issues during our interview with him in December of 2019. And aside from Eisenberg drilling down during the legal visit and putting Ivan through the paces, something else interesting happened. Eisenberg had to excuse herself halfway through the interview and go to the bathroom, and she threw up. This was Eisenberg and I in the car after the interview. Oh my God, I can't believe I puked. When's the last time you puked? Was the last time? I don't know. What, do you, what, what happened? I think that I got nauseous because talking to him, getting into the conversation, I started to realize he very well may not be guilty. And you got physically ill. I got physically ill, and that is not like me. So at one point during the interview, after talking to Ivan for quite a while, my stomach got upset. I got physically sick. And I'm not sure exactly what to attribute to that. But when I got sick, it was when I started thinking that there's a possibility that Ivan could be innocent and been sitting in prison for 20 years, which it seems like I had a visceral reaction to. Yeah. All right. Where to begin? What did you say? I don't think he did it. Well, before you walked in there, you were saying 80 to 85%. I don't think he did it. What percentage are you saying now? Yeah, I don't know how to put a percentage on it, really, but I, I would... Well, you were putting it at 80, 80 to 85% guilt. I put it in 15 to 20. Eight. So it flip-flopped. It did. I think it's either an evil genius or he didn't do it. I don't think he can fake that amount of passion about being innocent. It's very hard to do. He brought up a lot of really good points. I mean, if you're asking me if I found him credible, I would say I did find him credible. Now, I'm finding him credible based on body language, etc., but also a lot of the uh, facts. I mean, you know, if you're going from an 80% to a 15%, 
It's a big swing. You changed my mind. But, you know, there's a 2% chance that he didn't do it. Shouldn't be executed. So what would you just, I mean, you would basically tell Lundberg that he... It's incredible. Yeah. And we have all these problems with the case. You'll remember the day after this, we were going to meet with DA investigator Dale Lundberg. Ivan knew we were going to meet with Lundberg, so he made a list of all the outstanding evidence that we were hoping Lundberg could help us with. And I made a list of all the compelling problems with the case so far, with supporting documents... I printed all the material out at the hotel the next day, and we drove to Collin County Courthouse. We were not able to record that meeting, but he sat down with us for a long while. So we actually ended up meeting with Lundberg for three hours, and we were left with the impression that he was really going to give us a hand and help us or lead us in the direction anyway to get that evidence. But a few weeks later... Um, after meeting with Lundberg, I sent him another email just to follow up and see if he had any information for us further. The strange thing was Lundberg emailed back that he really couldn't help us anymore with that. And I don't know if that was brought on by the powers that be, his boss, or he just wasn't comfortable. But either way, we're still trying to work a way to get that information. So while we were extremely grateful that the DA's office and Dale Lundberg took the time to meet with us, that door seemed to close at the end of 2019. But when one door closes in this case, another opens. I got some new information about the ring that Amy was wearing. When I read the stuff in the in the trial, I thought that, okay, well, then I actually saw that ring. But that would have been post having read the trial stuff. And like, yeah, if there was a, if he stole a ring and gave it to her, then that would have been the ring I saw, but not necessarily, not if she had another one. Not if she had another one and not, it just depending on when you saw it. But like I say, I don't think you could have seen it after the murders. No, I didn't, see him. I, didn't I, no, I never saw him afterwards. I never saw him afterwards. Was there a second ring after all? Next time on Cousins by Blood. To find out more about the case and to see pictures, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Cousins by Blood Podcast. If you're a fan of the podcast, please give a five-star rating on iTunes. If you have any information about this case, you can email me at cousinsbybloodpodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Jenna Rojas, Chuck Stevenson, and Susan Eisenberg. Mixing and mastering by Jody Abbott. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned. Stay tuned.